Welcome. You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Hello, this is Roger Baker, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Sky and Telescope, brought to you by Ayers LA. Today's articles are from the December 2021 edition. In today's podcast, we'll be taking a look at News Notes, which are various news articles from the world of astronomy. Next, Seeing the Seven Sisters. One of the sky's finest open clusters has quite a tale to tell. Written by Fred Schaff. Next, Comet Leonard races across the sky. This fast-moving visitor may prove to be the best object of its kind in more than a year. Written by Bob King. Next, Creepy Rocks and Terrain. Understanding the moon requires looking beyond the visible. Written by Charles Wood. Next, The Short, Violent Lives of Magnetars. Neutron stars with extreme magnetic fields are behind some of the brightest outbursts in the Milky Way. Their story might reveal the answers to many cosmic mysteries. Written by Matthew R. Francis. And finally, Remembering Henrietta Swan Leavitt. How One Talented Astronomer's Meticulous Work Left an Important Legacy. Written by Dava Sobel. And now, on to today's podcast from Sky and Telescope. News Notes Exoplanets For the first time, astronomers have clearly detected a dusty disk around a young giant planet, which might go on to form moons. The results appear in the July 20th Astrophysical Journal Letters. Astronomers had previously imaged a disk around PDS-70, a young star in Centaurus, and detected two newborn planets, PDS-70b and C. Observers saw hints of a smaller disk around PDS-70C itself, but couldn't distinguish it from the stellar disk. Now, a team led by Miriam Benisti has used the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, ALMA, to clearly show PDS-70C has a disk of its own. This giant world is the first exoplanet to have a directly detected circumplanetary disk. PDS-70's disk could make moons in a couple different ways. Dust particles can get trapped in the disk and eventually stick together, forming pebbles, then rocks, then moons. Or, particles might spontaneously congregate into clumps and collapse into a satellite. The other planet, PDS-70b, shows signs of tenuous dust nearby, but nothing actually encircling the planet. The largest surprise is the non-detection of a circumplanetary disk around PDS-70b says Sebastian Haffert, who has also studied this system. This probably means that it already has completed its potential satellite system. While any moons that have been formed wouldn't be detectable with current technology, this system still serves as a laboratory to study the growth of planets and their moons. Solar System Saturn has a fuzzy core, too. 
New research reveals that Saturn, like Jupiter, has a fuzzy core that extends 60% of the way to its surface. This finding, published August 16th in Nature Astronomy, changes how we think about the formation of gas giant planets in our solar system and beyond. Astronomers have been using Saturn's rings as a giant seismometer to investigate its interior. As the planet quivers like heavy jello, its pull on the inner rings wobbles, corralling the ice particles into spiral patterns. NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which operated until its grand finale in 2017, imaged these ring spirals indirectly via stellar occultations looking through the rings at background stars. But one particular spiral wave in the C-ring had a low frequency that astronomers couldn't explain. Now, Christopher Mankovic and Jim Fuller, both at Caltech, made the case that this frequency indicates a quiver that penetrated deep into the planet. That would only be possible if there were no hard boundary between the core and the outer envelope. Instead, rocks and ices in the planet's core must be smeared out dissolved into the fluid helium and hydrogen under intense pressure. Combining the seismic data with Cassini's measurements of local gravitational fields and with computer models of Saturn's interior, the researchers concluded that the smeared core of the planet is 55 times Earth's mass, with rock and ice making up 17 Earth's worth. Hydrogen and helium make up the rest. To maintain stability in the event of sloshing, the core must have layers with the heaviest, most rock-rich material at the center of the core. This is a very interesting result that indeed changes the way we think about Saturn and giant planets in general, says planetary scientist Ravit Hillard, who was not involved in the study. Fuzzy cores argue against the core accretion scenario, in which giant planets grow as hydrogen and helium gas glom on to a rocky core. It could be that the rocky core disintegrated and diffused outward, or it could be there never was a rocky core to begin with. These results extend beyond the solar system, with implications of how astronomers characterize giant exoplanets, too. Venus, thin-skinned and ready to blow. A small volcanic feature on the edge of a Venusian corona gives further credence to the theory that our sister planet has a thin outer layer and an active interior. Megan Russell and Katherine Johnson published an analysis of the peculiar feature in the August Journal of Geophysical Research, Planets. Dubbed Narina Tholus, the steep-sided volcanic dome perches on the edge of Aramati Corona, as seen in radar maps from NASA's Magellan Orbiter. Coronae are common on Venus, thought to be giant volcanic upwellings that later collapsed in the center. Aramati is likely only 1.4 million years old, making Narina, which clearly formed afterwards, even younger. Russell modeled the heat flow under the surface, using a method that has been used extensively to study volcanic activity on Earth. Feeding radar images into a computer simulation, she then predicted the effects of the dome's load on its surroundings. She was able to reproduce the shape of Narina Tholus when the surrounding lithosphere was at most a third thick as Earth's. Paul Byrne, who was not involved in the study, agrees that the result adds to growing evidence that Venus is an active world. They've used very established techniques, Byrne says, and they've been able to get results consistent with volcanic activity that is relatively geologically recent. This is important because anything that's relatively recent is probably ongoing. The stereo radar needed to extend this analysis is currently only available for 20% of the planet's surface. Russell found 13 other coronae accompanied by steep-sided domes within those data, but none of those had the flexing pattern that she used to measure the underground heat flow. Future missions such as NASA's Veritas and Da Vinci Plus and the ESA's Envision offer the hope of detecting small features like Narina Tholus.
Mars, Gale Crater, Ancient Lake, or Puddles. When NASA sent the Curiosity rover to Gale Crater in 2012, scientists thought the site looked like a massive ancient lake bed. But now, an independent analysis of both Curiosity data and recent imagery taken from orbit suggests that the rock layers previously thought to be deposits laid down by water might actually come from wind and chemical weathering instead. In the August 6th Science Advances, Xing Lu and colleagues point out that even though early observations indicated that Gale Crater once held a large body of water, few of the rocks Curiosity has examined actually look like deposits. At the very beginning of the journey, scientists identified mudstone at the bottom of Gale Crater, which likely formed when mud settled out of calm water. But since then, as the rover has traveled up the base of Mount Sharp, it has seen few lake-formed rocks. The team thinks that this discrepancy is best explained if the crater only ever held a smattering of shallow ponds. In that case, the majority of the ground explored to date would be basalt sand and silt. The layers of different kinds of rock, which scientists thought were left behind by an ancient lake, could instead have been deposited by wind in a caustic atmosphere. Data from Curiosity indicate that elements that stay put under chemical weathering, such as aluminum, become more prevalent at higher altitudes. Meanwhile, other elements that are more easily dispersed, such as iron, become scarcer. This pattern is similar to what we see on ancient exposed rock formations on Earth, which formed under a very different atmosphere than exists today. The researchers argue that a low-oxygen greenhouse atmosphere containing methane and hydrogen gas chemically weathered the rocks in Gale Crater. This new paper says you don't really need much water at all, says Bradley Thompson, who was not involved in the study. It points out a possible ambiguity in the data that only more data, a lot more samples or even sample return, could resolve. Perseverance rover will collect multiple samples for eventual return to Earth and it's possible that these rocks could provide more definitive clues to Mars water history. Meanwhile, scientists will continue to analyze data coming in from Curiosity's slow trek up Mount Sharp. Fast Radio Bursts New Observations Challenge Radio Burst Model Most astronomers agree that the brief flashes known as Fast Radio Bursts, FRBs, probably come from highly magnetized neutron stars. But astronomers can't yet explain why a minority of these sources flare repeatedly, even though most FRBs appear to be one-off events. A new study of a known repeating FRB published in the August 26 Nature adds a piece to the puzzle, says Victoria Caspi. Astronomers have watched FRB 2018916b, located in a galaxy some 460 million light-years away, produce multiple bursts over a days-long window, which recurs about every 16 days. That 16-day pattern was thought to be the orbital period of the magnetar and a companion star, explains first author Inez Pastor Marzuela. If the companion powered a thick, radio-absorbing wind, then the magnetar's burst would only be visible when it was on our side of the orbit. However, simultaneous observations of the source by the International Low Frequency Array, LOFAR, and the 14-dish Westerbrook Synthesis Radio Telescope, WSRT in the Netherlands, challenged the binary wind scenario. Stellar winds should absorb more lower-frequency radio waves than higher-frequency ones, so astronomers expected that the bursts of LOFAR observed, down to 110 MHz, would be visible over a narrower time window than the ones WSRT witnessed, around 1.4 GHz. We found the exact opposite, says team member Jory van Leeuwen. Moreover, the peak in the number of high-frequency bursts preceded the low-frequency peak by a few days, which the binary model also doesn't predict. I agree that the observations are challenging for the model, says Caspi 
who has studied the LOFAR data for this object but was not involved in the current study. However, she's not ready to rule out the binary idea. We need more sources and better statistics. Even if this particular source is special, it could shed more light on the properties of FRBs in general. Stars Red dwarfs aren't so bad for planets, after all. Red dwarf stars appear to flare preferentially at high latitudes, a feature that might keep their exoplanets habitable instead of hellish. The results appear in the October monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Red dwarf stars make up 75% of the stars in the Milky Way. Also known as M-dwarfs, they're much cooler than the Sun, and their churning guts and fast rotation make them prone to more extreme magnetic activity. To be potentially habitable, any planet would have to orbit a red dwarf closely, but that proximity would put it in a vulnerable position. Flares and energetic particles from the magnetically active star can strip a planet's atmosphere. Now, a team led by Ekaterina Illen suggests that the flares might not be as destructive as once thought. Ilan and her colleagues combed through data from NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey satellite to find four red dwarfs exhibiting flares that lasted longer than the rotation period of the star. Each star's spin left a rotational fingerprint on the light curve that enabled Ilan's team to pinpoint each flare's location on its star's globe. The team found that the flares all occurred near the poles, at latitudes between 55 and 81 degrees. That's different from solar flares, which as a general rule occur within 30 degrees of the equator. Although the sample size is small, Cynthia Froning, who is not involved in the study, thinks the results are significant. There's only a 1 in 1,000 chance that all the flares would have occurred at high latitudes if they were equally likely to happen at any latitude. If M-dwarf flares typically occur at high latitudes, Planets orbiting in the plane of the star's equator, which is the case for worlds around such stars where inclinations are known, would never encounter the outbursts of energetic particles or intense radiation. Perhaps the most common stars in the galaxy could host habitable planets after all. Obituary Carolyn Shoemaker, 1929-2021 Famed asteroid and comet hunter Carolyn Shoemaker died on August 13th at the age of 92. Her longest and most ambitious project, the Palomar Asteroid and Comet Survey, led to her discovery of hundreds of asteroids and 32 comets, including most spectacularly Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. When that comet collided with Jupiter in the summer of 1994, it marked the most astonishing collision in the solar system that humans had ever witnessed. Born Carolyn Jean Spellman on June 24, 1929, in Gallup, New Mexico, she grew up in Chico, California, and attended what is now California State University, Chico. Although she initially had no interest in science, that changed after meeting and marrying a young geologist named Gene Shoemaker. Carolyn became enthralled by his passion for Earth as a world, its history written in the pages of rock. Carolyn began her married life as a teacher, but found it to be tedious. So, while her husband trained astronauts to conduct geology experiments during their field trips on the moon, Carolyn raised the couple's three children, Christy, Linda, and Pat. As the children grew older, Gene suggested that Carolyn join his new program to search for asteroids that could pose a threat to Earth. Their instrument of choice was a stereoscope through which Carolyn could view two pieces of film at the same time. With both exposures recording identical parts of the sky, 
Her eyes would apparently see just one image, but if an object were to move in the sky between one exposure and the next, it would appear to float atop the background of stars. Carolyn quickly became an expert at finding asteroids, work that continued after Jean's death in a car accident in Australia in 1997. Carolyn's work earned several accolades. She and Jean shared the Rittenhouse Medal in 1988 and the Scientists of the Year Award in 1995. She received an honorary doctorate in 1990 from Northern Arizona University Flagstaff and the NASA Exceptional Scientific Achievement Medal in 1996. However, the experience of observing was the real joy of the many years Carolyn spent under the stars. In brief, a double Venus flyby. Two spacecraft experienced a close Venus encounter in early August. Solar Orbiter passed by on August 9th, and Bepi Colombo on August 10th. Both approached Venus from its night side, with the planet appearing as a crescent, but they left on divergent paths. After passing 7,995 kilometers, or 4,968 miles, above Venus's surface, Solar Orbiter sped outward from the Sun, aimed at a November 27th encounter with Earth. The Earth flyby will place the spacecraft into its operational science orbit, beginning its prime mission observing the Sun. Bepi Colombo needed to lose speed in order to drop in toward Mercury's orbit. It passed just ahead of Venus in its orbit on the way to a flyby at an altitude of 552 kilometers, the closest encounter since Venus Express in 2014. Venus's gravity tugged backward on the spacecraft, slowing it down and sending it on a path toward Mercury, which it will first approach on October 1st. The Venus flyby offered both Solar Orbiter and BepiColombo the opportunity to make observations of the planet's magnetosphere. Those data are still under analysis. American Astronomical Society Acquires Wilman Bell the American Astronomical Society, AAS, publisher of Sky and Telescope since 2019, has acquired the inventory of books, star atlases, and software produced and sold by Wilman Bell, Incorporated, founded in 1973 by Perry and Patricia Romaglis of Richmond, Virginia. For decades, Wilman Bell has been among the most respected publisher of books for astronomers, including amateurs interested in building their own telescopes, exploring the history of astronomical observing, improving their skills, and contributing to scientific research. The AAS expects to make Wilman Bell titles available for purchase through S&T's online store at shopatsky.com by the end of October. Most of Wilman Bell's existing books will remain available indefinitely, including such high-demand titles as Uranometria 2000.0, Star Atlas, and the multi-volume Night Sky Observer's Guide. The AAS also plans to publish new volumes in the popular Annals of the Deep Sky series. Volume 8 is already printed and bound and will be available for immediate shipment once new orders are being accepted. New titles will be commissioned to appear under the AAS S&T Wilman Bell imprint. Blue and Gold Satellites Will Head to Mars NASA has announced the selection of two spacecraft dubbed Blue and Gold that will head to Mars in 2024, arriving in 2026, to study the Martian space weather environment. The overall mission is named the Escape and Plasma Acceleration and Dynamics Explorers, Escapade. Costing only $80 million, Escapade is part of a NASA initiative to produce low-cost, quick-to-assemble interplanetary missions called the Small Innovative Missions for Planetary Exploration, Simplex, program. 
For comparison, the development phase of NASA's MAVEN spacecraft cost $671 million. Once in space, Blue and Gold will separate and cruise in tandem to Mars for orbital insertion. Orbiting on opposing sides of the red planet, the two craft will provide the first simultaneous stereo picture of how the solar wind interacts with the planet's upper atmosphere. Science collected by the Escapade mission could paint a more detailed picture of how Mars lost much of its atmosphere to the solar wind early in its history. Plus, studies of the Martian ionosphere will characterize how it could interfere with future radio communications from the planet's surface. Seeing the Seven Sisters One of the sky's finest open clusters has quite a tale to tell. Written by Fred Schaff. The Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters, as they're also called, is more than just the loveliest star cluster for naked eye observers. The sight is so distinctive that it has been mentioned in countless legends and great literature throughout history, and it has even appeared in modern advertising. About two millennia ago, the Druids used the date of the cluster's sunset rising to mark the beginning of their year, and the Celtic holiday, Samhain, which later evolved into Halloween, All Hallows' Evening. You may be reading this column around Halloween, but whenever the Pleiades are above the horizon, you should have little trouble finding them, so long as your sky isn't washed out by urban light pollution, bright moonlight, or both. The Pleiades are above the eastern horizon, from late October to the end of December, The cluster floats directly above Orange Aldebaran and the Hyades, all three sites residing in the constellation Taurus, the celestial bull. Below Taurus is the low, tilted form of brilliant Orion, with its conspicuous three-star belt spanning three degrees. But unlike the belt asterism, the Pleiades are a true cluster of stars gravitationally bound to each other as they travel through space. How far away are the Pleiades? Back in 2009, the International Year of Astronomy commemorated the 400th anniversary of the year Galileo first aimed his telescope skyward. In 2009, estimates pegged the cluster's distance at 400 light-years, a coincidence I took advantage of when I showed the Pleiades to the public. I was able to tell them that the light they were seeing began its journey in 1609, as Galileo was making his monumental observations, Kepler was publishing his first two laws of planetary motion, and Shakespeare was nearing the end of his brilliant career. Now in 2021, the latest research places the cluster a little farther away. The cluster represents the seven sisters of Greek mythology and is so lovely and delicate that it's associated in legends with maidens, doves, or even a mother hen with its brood of chicks. The geometric shape formed by the cluster's brightest stars is most often pictured as a tiny dipper, a design that will be especially familiar to owners of Subaru cars. The number of naked eye pleiads visible to the person with average eyesight under average sky conditions may be seven, but is more likely to be just six. This disparity has led to the legend of the lost pleiad. In his poem, The Good Knight, the 19th century English writer Alfred Austin alluded to the missing star in his beautiful lines, The sister stars that once were seven mourn for their missing mate in heaven. Part of the reason some observers see fewer than seven stars is the tight pairings of several cluster members. For instance, the stars of the Tiny Dipper's Handle, named for the seven sisters' parents, Atlas and Pleione, shine at magnitudes 3.6 and 5.1, but are only about five minutes apart. The bowl of the Tiny Dipper is formed by stars named for the individual sisters. Working counterclockwise from 2.8 magnitude, Alcyon, the brightest Pleiad, they are Merope, Electra, Selino, Tegeta, Maya, and Asterope, which is a wide double star just north of Maya. A total of nine Pleiades stars are magnitude 5.6 or higher, 
But under excellent sky conditions, careful observers can observe several more without resorting to optical aid. The eagle-eyed Stephen James O'Meara has seen 17 Pleiades, and the record is held by the great Walter Scott Houston, who counted 18. Fred Schaff was able to glimpse 12 individual Pleiades with the unaided eye in his youth. Comet Leonard races across the sky. This fast-moving visitor may prove to be the best object of its kind in more than a year. Written by Bob King Many of us have been living off the fumes from Comet Neowise, C2020F3, in anticipation of the next bright comet. That opportunity will hopefully present itself in December, when Comet Leonard, C2021A1, could brighten to naked eye prominence. Astronomer Gregory J. Leonard, at the Mount Lemmon Observatory near Tucson, Arizona, discovered the comet exactly one year before perihelion on January 3, 2021, when it was at 19th magnitude. With any luck, the comet might reach magnitude 6.5 in Canis Venetici at the start of morning twilight as the month opens. Leonard then races through Boötes and Serpents, where it could become a fine binocular object, as it peaks around 4th magnitude during its closest approach to Earth on December 12th. Unfortunately, that's also around the time the comet will lose its battle with bright morning twilight. Of course, predicting a comet's brightness is a notoriously tricky business, beset with uncertainty. As comet expert Alan Hale notes, The good news is that it comes close to Earth and will be appearing at a high phase angle. And if it has a reasonably high dust content, there could be quite a bit of enhancement due to forward scattering. Forward scattering, or backlighting, makes dust glow brightly when seen in the same direction as the sun. However, since most comets don't release the bulk of their dust until after perihelion, which occurs several weeks following Leonard's closest approach to Earth, Hale advises us to temper our expectations. After December 12th, the comet departs the dawn and pops up low in the southwestern sky after sundown and it's moving at lightning speed. Between December 12th and 13th, it covers nearly 10 degrees of sky as it traces a shallow arc across the southwest from Ophiuchus into Sagittarius. Observers at mid-northern latitudes will struggle to coax Leonard from twilight's glow until later in the month. Near the end of twilight on the 22nd, the comet will shine at fifth magnitude and stand about five degrees above the southwestern horizon. It loses another magnitude by month's end as it ducks into Piscus Austrinus. Highlights of Comet Leonard's apparition include a flyby of the 6.3 magnitude globular cluster M3 on the mornings of December 2nd and 3rd. And at dusk on the 17th, the comet sits five degrees below Venus. Moonless skies prevail in the morning hours from the 2nd to the 13th and in the early evening starting around the 21st. Comet Leonard may seem in a hurry right now, but it took its sweet time getting here. Aphelion occurred about 35,000 years ago at a distance of 3,500 AU. Its current visit to the inner solar system has essentially spanned most of modern human history. When the comet next returns, the world will surely have changed beyond recognition. Creepy Rocks and Terrain Understanding the Moon Requires Looking Beyond the Visible Written by Charles Wood The Procellarum Creep Terrain, PKT, is a 21-year-old discovery that is critical to our modern understanding of the Moon, but is hardly known to amateur astronomers. Up until the spacecraft era, our knowledge of lunar geology depended on visual observations and photographs of the lunar surface. Although these are still powerful and important tools, Discoveries made using ultra-high resolution images and the flood of new data from beyond the visible spectrum produced by a host of spacecraft 
have radically changed what we once thought we knew. A single map can no longer depict everything we can glean about our nearest neighbor. That requires the integration of data across multiple disciplines. The very first lunar orbiting spacecraft, aptly named the Lunar Orbiter Series, accidentally discovered that the strength of lunar gravity isn't homogenous. Mission controllers noticed that the orbiters were pulled closer to the lunar surface as they passed over Maria, demonstrating that there must be more mass beneath their surfaces than is present under the highlands. These mass cons, mass concentrations, have been mapped with increasing precision ever since this serendipitous discovery. Following the telescopic photography campaigns in the 1960s that used filters to isolate different parts of the visible spectrum, Spacecraft have mapped the moon across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, revealing the chemical and mineralogical compositions of different lunar materials. The occurrence of radioactive element thorium mapped with gamma-ray spectrometers reveals that the interior of the moon isn't the same everywhere. Other sensors measured thermal, topographical, and magnetization properties, characteristics that are invisible to traditional photography. In addition, the analysis and dating of samples collected during the Apollo missions provided ground truth to accurately calibrate the lunar crater counts used to estimate the ages of Maria. One of the major discoveries from these multitudes of data was of the PKT in 2000 by Brad Joloff and colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Scientists had previously discovered basalts, anorthosite-rich highland materials, and other less common rock types from Apollo samples, but they also found that an unexpected suite of rocks called creep K-R-E-E-P, rich in certain elements, especially radioactive potassium, atomic symbol K, phosphorus, P, and rare earth elements, R-E-E, the so-called incompatible elements that don't bond readily with those in most rocks, and so are the last to form when magma solidifies. Creep was found in many Apollo samples as brecciated, fragmented rocks, but also in non-brecciated volcanic rocks in Apollo 15 samples from the Hadley Rill area of Mari Imbrium. This finding suggests that the source of all Crete materials is buried in the Hadley Rill region. Presumably, the formation of the Imbrium impact basin brecciated and ejected bits of Crete basalt, scattering debris all over the moon. But data from the NASA Lunar Prospector's gamma-ray spectrometer shows that high radiation levels, as identified by thorium measurements, were almost entirely concentrated in an area covered by Oceanus Procellarum, Mari Imbrium, the western half of Mari Serentatis, and the Imbrium ejecta northwest of the crater Ptolemaeus. Jolliffe and his colleagues recognized that this area is unique and called it the PKT. So have all lunar scientists ever since. The thorium map shows that the PKT includes most of the Maria on the moon. Only the eastern Maria, including Crisium, Tranquilitatis, Nectaris, and Fecunditatis are excluded. On the far side, there are fewer Maria, and only the ones inside the South Pole Aitken Basin have any significant levels of thorium. Another surprising characteristic of the PKT is that, although most of the lunar Maria formed between about 3.8 and 3.2 billion years ago, only the basalts in the PKT have crater count ages as young as 2 to 1 billion years. The PKT is the only area of the moon that had voluminous quantities of magma for a prolonged period. The older PKT Mari rocks appear chemically similar to other Mari rocks found over much of the moon, but the younger lavas that originate in the PKT have nearly twice as much titanium as older rocks outside of the PKT. This means that the source region or processing of the younger magmas has changed since the time of earlier eruptions. PKT magma also favored the formation of sinuous rills carved by flowing lava, nearly all of which occur in the PKT. However, domes, another volcanic landform, are common in the PKT as well as elsewhere, such as in the eastern Maria, especially Tranquilitatis. Similarly, pyroclastic deposits, such as volcanic ash, 
are also widespread both in and beyond the PKT, especially in four fractured craters. Models of the various styles of lunar volcanic eruptions by Lionel Wilson at Lancaster University, Lancaster, UK, and James Head at Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island, help explain these differences. They found that sinuous reels form when eruption rates and volumes are large, whereas domes, small shield volcanoes, form from small volume activity. The sinuous real distribution may imply that PKT eruptions were generally larger than those in other regions, and the more widespread occurrence of pyroclastic deposits and domes may be explained by noting that the beginning of all eruptions is driven by escaping gases, while the end phases produce smaller eruptions with lavas that flow only short distances and sometimes build up small domes. Pyroclastics are deposited at beginnings of eruptions, and domes form during declining periods, with sinuous reels occurring any time a lot of magma erupts quickly. Next time you observe the moon with your telescope, try to appreciate the impact of the PKT on all aspects of lunar volcanism. Each rill, dome, and ash deposit you detect tells you something about local eruption conditions billions of years ago. To fully embrace your role as a lunar volcanism explorer, you may want to wear a hard hat and leather boots while observing. Contributing editor Chuck Woods sees hints of lunar history every time he views the moon. Before we go on, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. The Short Violet Lives of Magnetars Neutron stars with extreme magnetic fields are behind some of the brightest outbursts in the Milky Way. Their story might reveal the answers to many cosmic mysteries. Written by Matthew R. Francis On December 27, 2004, Earth's atmosphere shook with the impact of a cosmic blast. The thin air high above the surface reverberated under the assault, the radiation setting off a cascade of ionization deep into the atmosphere. The Burst Alert Telescope, aboard the newly launched Neil Gorel's Swift Observatory, designed to detect the most powerful explosions in the universe, was saturated with high-energy photons. The culprit behind this colossal event wasn't a supernova or even a collision between two dead stars, like the type seen by LIGO and Virgo. Instead, it was a burst of gamma rays from a magnetar, the collapsed core of a dead star known as a neutron star, but one with extreme and tangled magnetic fields. And unlike with supernovae or gravitational wave-producing collisions, the star survived to flash again. This object, known as SGR 1806-20, is located roughly 50,000 light-years away within our own galaxy. The thicker air in Earth's lower atmosphere shielded us from the worst of its radiation, so none of us surface-dwellers saw or felt anything on that day. However, gamma-ray observatories, radio telescopes, and atmospheric observers all saw SGR 1806-20. The sheer magnitude of the blast, dumping as much energy into space in a tenth of a second as the sun emits in 150,000 years, illustrates how powerful magnetars are. Their magnetic fields are approximately a quadrillion, 10 to the 15th power, times that of the Sun, and 1,000 times greater than the fields generated by typical neutron stars, which are themselves among the most extreme objects in the cosmos. Magnetars are amazing laboratories of dense matter physics and strong magnetic fields that we really don't have anywhere else in the universe, says Daniela Huppenkothen. They are quite mind-blowing if you think about it. Their extreme nature is why astronomers think magnetars are responsible for a wide range of cosmic phenomena. In addition to the gamma-ray flares that marked the earliest observations, magnetars might even be responsible for some of the strange radio bursts that have puzzled researchers since their discovery in 2007. 
20 years ago, there were 10 people in the world working on magnetars, says Nanda Ray. They were thought to be very rare objects, but we're starting to find out that they are connected to the most extreme explosions in the universe. Most of the transients in time-domain astronomy are actually connected with the existence of magnetars. They're giving us a lot of answers connecting different branches of astronomy. Soft Gamma Repeaters The theory predicting neutron stars preceded their observational discovery by more than 30 years, but the first hint of a magnetar was observational, a powerful gamma-ray flare detected in 1979. At that time, astronomers were still in the early stages of understanding cosmic events involving the highest energy photons, lumped together under the name gamma-ray bursts, GRBs. However, it was evident that the 1979 flare was a little different than other explosions that would later be identified as colliding neutron stars and extreme supernovae. It was followed by smaller bursts in subsequent years, rather than being the single powerful explosion characterized by normal GRBs. In 1986, astronomers called the objects producing these repeating signals soft gamma repeaters, SGRs, with the very first one given the designation SGR0526-66, where the numbers represent its celestial coordinates. Soft sounds almost cuddly, but it refers to the lower energy gamma radiation produced in the later bursts. The initial flare and other GRBs are primarily hard gamma rays. Observatories also detected two other events in 1979 that were later grouped with the SGRs. But what made SGR 0526-66 special was that spacecraft across the solar system, including the Earth-orbiting Einstein Observatory, the Pioneer Venus Orbiter, and the Sun-orbiting Venera 11 and 12 probes, detected the blast. As with GRBs, satellites designed to look for illicit nuclear weapons also spotted SGR 0526-66, though those data weren't released to scientists until later. The range of detections enabled astronomers to locate the source of the flare in the remnant of a supernova in the Large Magellanic Cloud, LMC, which is the closest substantial galaxy to the Milky Way. Over the next few decades, astronomers identified more SGRs and eventually determined that all were located inside the Milky Way and its close neighbors. In contrast, researchers established by the early 2000s that GRBs all occur in distant galaxies. Gamma-ray aftershocks proved to be key to understanding the astronomical objects responsible for SGRs. In 1992, astrophysicist Robert Duncan and Christopher Thompson predicted the existence of neutron stars with anomalously strong magnetic fields and relatively slow rotation rates. They coined the term magnetar to describe this new subtype of stellar remnant. Although the duo initially proposed magnetars as part of an attempt to understand neutron star formation, the researchers realized quickly that they were also a solution to the SGR mystery. From that beginning, high-energy astronomer Krissa Cavelletu and her collaborators connected multiple aspects of SGRs to magnetars. In 1998, a new giant SGR flare allowed them to draw all the available observational evidence together. As it faded, it fluctuated in rhythm with a pulsar's slowing spin, establishing the magnetar-SGR relationship once and for all. Since then, the number of known magnetars has continued to grow. As of September 2021, there were 24 confirmed magnetars and 6 candidate ones. The 2004 magnetar flare that made Earth's atmosphere dance came from one of the first SGRs discovered. In addition, astronomers connected magnetars to another observational mystery, anomalous X-ray pulsars, AXPs. Unlike normal pulsars, which emit X-rays mostly if they are stripping matter from a companion star, AXPs are very luminous in X-rays, yet don't live in binary systems. A magnetar is born. 
Neutron stars, including magnetars, are apparently perfect spheres of dense matter, packing the mass of a star into an object between 16 and 32 kilometers, 10 to 20 miles wide. Understanding neutron stars requires combining nuclear physics, strong gravity, intense magnetic fields, and the behavior of extreme, dense hot matter. These conditions can't be repeated in laboratories on Earth. Astrophysicists also don't have a complete knowledge of the neutron star's equation of state, which provides insight into internal structure and governs how big these objects can grow. Magnetars have the same basic physical characteristics as ordinary neutron stars, but their history seems to make the difference in how they behave. A key insight on that point came from the environments in which magnetars were discovered, relatively young supernova remnants. That indicates magnetars are fairly young objects, so their extreme magnetic fields and slow rotations are probably due to how they formed. A typical neutron star is born from the death of a supergiant star that began life with between approximately 8 and 20 times the mass of our Sun. When that star runs out of its usable nuclear fuel, its core collapses into a neutron star, while the outer layers are blown off in a supernova. According to one magnetar formation theory, if the original core was spinning fast enough, about once every 10 milliseconds, the magnetic fields inside it would get twisted up and grow to be extremely strong. In cores with slower rotations, the interior magnetic fields simply never become as intense in the first place. Those more sedate neutron stars become pulsars, such as the famous Crab Nebula pulsar. A newborn magnetar's rapid spin separates its interior into layers that rotate at different rates. The magnetic field from each layer conflicts with that produced by other layers, acting as a break. The rotation slows until it takes several seconds to complete a rotation. That's fast on our terms, but slow compared to the sub-second rotations of most pulsars. The moving magnetic fields also produce electric currents inside the magnetar that ultimately spell the end of the magnetar's stage of life. Those currents make the magnetic field decay on timescales of mega-years, says Ray. Between the magnetar's birth and when it is one mega-year old, the decay of the magnetic field drives everything. What kind of emission it has, how it will slow down, what is the temperature of the surface, and how many flares the source will have. The younger the source, the more active the burster will be. The magnetic field of a young magnetar will be very tangled, so there will be a lot of energy to move. However, there are other formation scenarios. Some GRBs are the result of two neutron stars colliding, and in some instances, they may merge into a single higher-mass neutron star, with the remaining cases resulting in a black hole. Genevieve Schroeder studies that type of GRB to see if there's any sign they make magnetars. We need two neutron stars that merge together and have a mass that is below or just a tiny bit above the maximum mass for neutron stars, she says. The newly formed star might sustain such an exceptionally high mass for a short period of time if different parts of its interior start off rotating at different rates. As with the supernova formation theory, Magnetars forming from GRBs require specific conditions. The idea is that these two neutron stars already have pretty high magnetic fields, so when they merge together, they could in theory create another neutron star with an even higher magnetic field, Schroeder explains. Starquake Whichever way they form, the resulting magnetars have the most extreme magnetic fields we know of in the universe. Those fields are tangled up inside the neutron star from their formation, and that mess means many of the fields repel each other, just as north poles of bar magnets repel other north poles. The tension and complex interplay between magnetic fields and electric currents in the magnetar interior work to disentangle the fields. But neutron stars also have solid crusts, which pin the magnetic fields in place where they pierce the surface. 
As the magnetic field lines move, they pull on this crust, says Huppenkothen. If you pull enough on something that you're anchored in, you're going to rip it apart, and that's how you get starquakes. Since everything about a magnetar is intense, starquakes are, too. The energy released when the crust cracks has to go somewhere, and the result is gamma-ray flares, including the ones powerful enough to affect Earth's atmosphere. Radiation from the sun ionizes atoms and molecules high above our planet's surface, creating a layer known as the ionosphere. The giant flares in 1979 and 2004 dramatically increased the ionosphere's size for a brief time. The same processes may also be responsible for some or all fast radio bursts, FRBs, which, as the name suggests, are brief, on the order of milliseconds, but intense, usually non-repeating flashes of radio emission. Thanks to the understanding that other high-energy outbursts were driven by magnetars, some astrophysicists suspected FRBs might also be neutron star-powered. However, known magnetars were all in our galaxy or its nearest neighbors, and FRBs were well suspected to be much more distant. The first real demonstration of the link came when researchers detected an FRB-like flare from a known magnetar in the Milky Way on April 28, 2020. I believe that FRBs, or at least a large percentage of them, can indeed be related to the first decades of newly born magnetars, Ray says. FRB numbers are very aligned with how many young magnetars you expect in other galaxies. Beyond the Horizon Huppenkothen and her collaborators have an even more ambitious purpose for studying starquakes, based on the harmonics produced in the magnetar crust as it oscillates. We study Earth's interior by studying earthquakes and their propagation through Earth, she explains. We don't have any way to look into the interior of the magnetar, but one thing these oscillations depend on is the neutron star equation of state, which is one of the big holy grails of neutron star physics. Much of our PhD research involved looking for those smaller reverberations in SGR data, and she found fluctuations that might be them. But she points out that much work is still to be done. Is it really a starquake? We don't know yet, because the theoretical models are complicated. Our statistical methods were all designed to look for ripples on a still pond, but I had to find them in something like a tropical storm on an ocean. In addition to the challenge of finding starquake signals, it's incredibly difficult to find magnetars in distant galaxies, which is where all observed GRBs occur. However, in January 2021, researchers announced that they had detected a powerful gamma-ray flare in the galaxy NGC 253, also known as the Sculptor Galaxy, which matches the behavior of magnetar flares in the Milky Way. This galaxy is undergoing huge levels of star formation and supernova creation as the largest stars burn through their short life cycles. So it's an obvious place to look for young neutron stars. And along with the identification of an FRB with a Milky Way magnetar, the discovery lends hope that we will see more and more of them outside our galaxy. Similarly, Ray is excited about the possibilities of studying matter in the extreme magnetic fields outside magnetars, the region known as the magnetosphere. Modern physics predicts that super-strong magnetic fields generate exotic quantum effects, but those are out of reach of present-day laboratories. If you put an atom of hydrogen in a strong magnetic field, the shape is not the typical shape. It has a shape like spaghetti, she explains. If hydrogen, the simplest type of atom in the cosmos, is affected that strongly, you can imagine how material of any kind can be affected by the presence of the field. To study this very strong regime, the only place we can go is observing these stars. Ray is involved with two forthcoming observatories. The Ground-Based Square Kilometer Array, SKA, 
will provide high-resolution radio observations of pulsars and magnetars, while the Athena X-ray Observatory will be able to study in unprecedented detail the behavior of matter swirling around in the magnetospheres. If the prevailing theory is correct, magnetars may only last a few thousand years before their magnetic fields decay. That's long on human scales, but short in cosmic terms. So, finding them during their relatively brief lives is as much chance as anything. However, as observatories continue to improve in sensitivity and resolution, astronomers have a better chance of finding magnetars at larger distances. The first was discovered a mere 42 years ago. With the huge leaps in understanding since then, who can say what the next 42 years might bring? Matthew R. Francis is a physicist, science writer, and frequent wearer of jaunty hats. Find more about his work at bowlerhatscience.org. Remembering Henrietta Swan Leavitt How One Talented Astronomer's Meticulous Work Left an Important Legacy Written by Dava Sobel In the century since Henrietta Leavitt died, the observation that she first published in 1908, then elaborated in 1912, has achieved the status of astrophysical law. Her quiet life has become the subject of books, stage plays, art exhibitions, poems, a doll, and at least one song. It was Levitt who discovered a yardstick for gauging distances across space, enabling the first realistic appreciation of the size of the Milky Way and, soon afterward, the breadth of the chasm separating our home galaxy from other island universes. I first encountered Henrietta Levitt at a meeting with astronomer Wendy Friedman, who is now the John and Marion Sullivan Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. At the time of our interview in the early 1990s, Friedman headed the Hubble Space Telescope Key Project to measure the Hubble constant to determine the expansion rate of the universe. She mentioned Levitt as the person who had first documented the noteworthy trait of CFID variables that makes such stars useful as deep space distance markers. Friedman stressed the point for my benefit. The entire research protocol for the key project rested on observations made by a little-known woman at the turn of the 20th century. Meeting Miss Levitt Her full name, Henrietta Swan Levitt, suggests she added a husband's surname to her own maiden name, but in fact, she never married. She remained Miss Levitt to her associates at the Harvard College Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, throughout the 20-odd years of employment there. Everyone liked her. It was said she had a nature full of sunshine and a talent for seeing the worthiest, most lovable features in others. Her ability to describe the changing brightness of variable stars bordered on the miraculous. However, as her biographer, George Johnson, noted in the preface to his 1995 book, Miss Levitt's Stars, his chosen subject had left no diaries and only a few letters to help tell her life story. Levitt was born on the 4th of July in 1868 in Lancaster, Massachusetts, the first of seven children and the namesake of her mother, Nee Henrietta Swan Kendrick. Her father, the Reverend George Roswell Levitt, moved the family to Cambridge and later to Cleveland, Ohio, serving in both those cities as pastor of congregational churches. In 1885, 16-year-old Henrietta enrolled at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Ohio. She had grown up singing hymns, but soon developed trouble hearing them, and over time she became increasingly deaf. She switched to Oberlin College, where she excelled at mathematics, and after two years returned to Cambridge to continue her studies at the Society for the Collegiate Instruction of Women later Radcliffe College. She lived with a family of her uncle, Erasmus Darwin Levitt Jr., a respected designer of steam engines who may have encouraged her interest in science. Her four-year program included courses in astronomy, physics, and mathematics, and introduced her to the nearby Astronomical Observatory. She began volunteering there after graduation in 1892, 
and was hired as a computer to process astronomical data in 1895. Familial obligations and travels in Europe took her away from her post at several junctures, but she signed on in 1902 as a permanent staff member of the observatory, where she remained until her death in December 1921. Plates of Starlight Astronomy was a day job for Henrietta Leavitt. She made all her discoveries without ever looking through a telescope. Instead, she studied images of the night sky recorded on glass photographic plates. Harvard Observatory Director Edward Charles Pickering had instituted a grand-scale program of astrophotography in both the northern and southern hemispheres. The long-exposure pictures captured the light of stars unseen by even the most talented observatories at the most powerful telescopes then in use, including Harvard's own 15-inch Mertz and Mailer refractor. Levitt sometimes worked alongside as many as 20 other women in the so-called Brick Building, an 1893 addition to Harvard Observatory. The brick building afforded fireproof protection for the prized, ever-growing collection of hundreds of thousands of glass photographic plates. Each morning, she found a stack of plates awaiting her. They arrived at her desk either from Harvard's darkroom on Madison Street or in boxed shipments from the observatory's southern outpost in Arequipa, Peru. She examined each plate by securing it in an upright wooden frame, tilted at a viewing angle of about 45 degrees. At the base of this light lectern, an attached mirror caught sunshine from the room's big windows and reflected it up through the glass to illuminate the myriad stars. Most images were negatives, showing the stars as black dots on a white background. A handheld magnifying loop brought them more clearly into view. Her particular task was to judge the magnitude of each star. Early assessments of photographic magnitude depended on the relative sizes of star dots. Levitt's procedures grew ever more sophisticated, informed by a knowledge of the spectral type of each star, as determined by her colleagues Wilhelmina Fleming and Annie Jump Cannon. Two stars of a particular color could be successfully compared, whereas comparing two stars of different types would introduce errors. She also factored in the limitations of the various telescopes used to create the photographic plates. In her painstaking work on establishing standard sequences of comparison stars, she combined data from more than a dozen telescopes ranging from small aperture instruments on the Harvard Observatory grounds to the 16-inch reflector at the Mount Wilson Observatory in California. Levitt logged her magnitude determinations in ledgers and pencil, and sometimes jotted them right on the glass plates in colored ink. The smooth, non-emulsion side of the plates provided a convenient writing surface. A custom-made device known as a fly spanker aided her labors. It was a small section of a glass plate showing model stars of known brightness, a sort of portable reference key. The miniature rectangle of glass, set in a wire frame and attached to a long handle, recalled the shape of a fly swatter though Levitt liked to joke that it was too small to do a fly much damage. Thanks in part to the standard sequences of stars that she established as a basis for comparison, as well as conversion factors for relating visual magnitudes to photographic ones, her photometry publications became trusted resources for astronomers everywhere. Inconsistent Suns Variable stars attracted particular interest at Harvard in the early 20th century, when only a couple hundred were known, and the causes of their variability remained largely mysterious. In 1903, when Pickering sent Levitt hunting for variable stars in the Orion Nebula, she compiled by stacking a series of negative plates, one at a time, over a glass positive of the region. The black dots generally covered the white blobs of unchanging stars, while white halos around black dots helped her identify 90 new variables within two months' time. From Orion, she moved on to the Magellanic Cloud of the southern sky, the site of her greatest coup. She described these two nebulous regions, now recognized as satellite galaxies of the Milky Way, 
as unusually difficult targets. They were large and densely crowded with stars. She imposed some order on them by creating a ruled glass grid that she could superimpose on the plates, thus corralling their component stars into boxes. Soon, she was seeing numerous stars that varied in brightness from one plate to the next, but they were extremely faint, many of them fluctuating near the limits of detection at around 15th magnitude. By early 1905, she had identified 900 new variables in the small Magellanic Cloud alone. As she continued to search for more, she tabulated and analyzed her results. In 1908, in the Annals of the Astronomical Observatory of Harvard College, she published her compendium of 1,777 variables in the Magellanic Clouds. The lengthy paper included 12 pages of tables of numerical data, plus an analysis of 16 stars for which she had assembled complete light curves. The 16 selected stars belonged to the class of Cephid-type variables, so named for their prototype Delta Cephi first described in 1785. These stars tend to brighten suddenly, then dim slowly, in a regular repeating fashion. Given that all her finds lay within the small Magellanic Cloud, Levitt assumed them all to be about the same distance from Earth. Therefore, the stars that appeared the brightest actually were the brightest. In other words, these stars didn't look brighter simply because they were closer to Earth than other stars in this group. This was a crucial finding. It occurred to Levitt that the maximum brightness of such a star and the timescale of the variations might be linked. It is worthy of notice, she concluded, that the brighter stars have the longer periods. In December 1908, after completing this work, she fell so ill as to require a hospital stay. People were discreet about their personal health in those days, and the nature of her illness wasn't reported. The start of the new year found her recuperating at her parents' home in Beloit, Wisconsin. As time and energy permitted, she returned to the observatory and continued to plumb her data by tracking another nine cephids in the small Magellanic Cloud through their cycles. These stars followed the same intriguing trend as the previous 16, confirming her insight. Pickering showed his excitement by rushing her graphs into print on March 3, 1912, in a Harvard College observatory circular the bulletin format he had introduced for announcing important new developments ahead of the annual annals. He signed the report, as always, with his own name, but the opening sentence gave full credit where it was due. The following statement regarding the periods of 25 variable stars in the small Magellanic Cloud has been prepared by Miss Levitt. The relation between the period and the brightness of these variables, which she had previously deemed worthy of notice, she now declared remarkable. Other astronomers agreed. Edgnar Hertzsprung in Denmark, immediately applied the newfound period luminosity relation to the problem of distance measurement. He compared the apparent brightness of known cephids with those of Levitt's study that had the same periods. According to the inverse square law, if one star lies twice as far away as its twin, it appears only one quarter as bright. Hertzsprung estimated the distance to the small Magellanic Cloud to be in the range of 30,000 light-years. This was an astounding figure at the time. Not only was the number gigantic, but it put a specific value on something long presumed to be unknowable. Later, with better calibration and further research on Cephids, the distance would be revised to about 200,000 light-years. In 1914, American astronomer Harlow Shapley began using the 60-inch telescope at Mount Wilson to pick out Cephids in globular clusters, and he gauged their great distances by the period-luminosity relation. Later, he extrapolated, extending the research of the Cephids to define the vast outlines of the Milky Way. Stellar Tributes 
By the spring of 1921, Henrietta Swan Leavitt had lost many members of her family and was sharing an apartment with her widowed mother not far from the brick building. The cancer that had often interrupted her work took her life near the end of that year, on December 12th at age 53. Observatory staff members attended her funeral at the First Congregational Church and wrote her obituary for Popular Astronomy. It cited her fruitful efforts to establish the photographic magnitudes for the North Polar Sequence, 96 stars very close to the pole, as well as similar strings of standard star sequences for all 48 of Pickering's 1884 subdivisions of the sky. The obituary also noted her contributions to sections of the International Astrophotographic Catalog and Jacobus Capeton's Plan of Selected Areas. In addition, Levitt had detected four new stars, what would now be called supernovae, several asteroids, and 2,400 variable stars, about half of all known at the time. The large total included several hundred beyond the multitude she enumerated in the Magellanic Clouds. Miss Levitt, the obituary concluded, was of an especially quiet and retiring nature and absorbed in her work at an unusual degree. She had the highest esteem of all her associates at the Harvard Observatory, where her loss is keenly felt. In 1925, a member of the Swedish Academy of Sciences thought to nominate the author of the period luminosity relation for the 1926 Nobel Prize in Physics. Unaware that Levitt had died, he wrote to her requesting further information. Shapley, who knew the prize could not be awarded posthumously, replied, Miss Levitt's work on the variable stars and the Magellanic Clouds, which led to the discovery of the relation between period and apparent magnitude, has afforded us a very powerful tool in measuring great stellar distances. To me personally, it has also been of highest service, for it was my privilege to interpret the observation by Miss Levitt, place it on a basis of absolute brightness, and extending it to the variable of the globular clusters, use it in my measures of the Milky Way. Just recently, in Hubble's measures of the distances of the spiral nebulae, he has been able to use the period luminosity curve I founded on Miss Levitt's work. Much of the time she was engaged at the Harvard University, her efforts had been devoted to the heavy routine of establishing standard magnitudes, upon which later we can base our studies of the galactic system. If she had been free from those necessary chores, I feel that Miss Levitt's scientific contributions would have been even more brilliant than they were. In the absence of any comments from Levitt herself about her accomplishments or any complaints about the work she was assigned, Others looking back on her life have felt free to fill that vacuum. The North Polar Sequence in particular struck some later astronomers as comparable to the labors of Hercules, coloring their view of its creators so as to turn Pickering into a tyrant, who bent the meek Levitt to his will. Shapley gave the first hint that Pickering hobbled Levitt when he rued those necessary chores that kept her from making her contributions even more brilliant than they were. This idea gained strength with Cecilia Payne, who came to the observatory as a graduate student in 1923 and earned Harvard's first doctoral degree in astronomy. In her autobiography, The Dyer's Hand, she reported the work of her female predecessors, some of whom were still alive when she arrived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, from England. Although she never met Levitt or Pickering, she wrote that the director had ruthlessly relegated Miss Levitt to the drudgery of fundamental photometry when her real interests lie in variable stars that she had begun to discover in the Magellanic Cloud. She was the ablest of all the workers at Harvard at the turn of the century, but Pickering was a dictator and his word was law. A paragraph later, Payne reiterated her sense that Pickering's harsh decision regarding Levitt had condemned a brilliant scientist to uncongenial work and probably set back the study of variable stars for several decades. Or perhaps, given Levitt's retiring nature, she would not have been as willing as Payne to follow her instincts and challenge authority on the strength of her own ideas. The Levitt Law in 2012, Jonathan Josh Gridley, who holds Pickering's honorary title as Robert Treat Payne Professor of Astronomy at Harvard, 
attended a centennial celebration of Henrietta Leavitt's pivotal discovery. At the day-long symposium, he suggested renaming her period luminosity relation the Leavitt Law, putting it on par with the Hubble Law for establishing the distances of receding galaxies. All astronomy textbooks should use Leavitt Law in describing the importance of Henrietta's discovery. Grinley recalls telling the gathering, It was not just a period luminosity relation of Cepheid variable stars. It really transformed astronomy. At Grinley's urging, the Executive Council of the American Astronomical Society acted to endorse the name change. Many AAS members have since adopted the Levitt Law in their publications, textbooks, teaching, and public speaking. Grinley's office belongs to a complex of interconnected structures on the observatory grounds, known today as the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian. It incorporates the brick building, where approximately half a million glass plates still reside, stored in tall metal cabinets. For the past 15 years, the National Science Foundation has supported an ongoing project to digitize them for ready access by current and future astronomers. Several of the plates scrutinized and annotated by Levitt, however, have been deemed too historically valuable to be subjected to the routine digitization process, which entails wiping the plates clean of all markings before scanning them. Instead, these particular plates will be scanned as they are for the variable data can be gleaned between the penned notations. Student groups and other curious visitors to the plate stacks learn about the collection from Lindsay Smith's role, the current curator of astronomical photographs. I always show one of Henrietta Leavitt's plates, Zroll told me. It's impossible, of course, to know her personal thoughts and feelings, and many people say she was held back. But from looking at her plate notations and reading her notebooks, I think she must have loved what she did. Some 2,600 logbooks, companion pieces to the glass plates, have been scanned page by page for public perusal. Volume 19 of the Henrietta Leavitt series is one that stands out, as it painstakingly identifies all of the companion stars she chose for her measurements of variable magnitudes in the small Magellanic Cloud. The original of that particular logbook is kept on hand at John G. Wallback Library that forms part of the observatory complex. Librarian Maria McEachern holds it up as a paragon of diligence and consistency. Compared to Annie Jump Cannon's notebooks, which McEachern described to me as just wild, Levitt progresses neatly and methodically from star to star, plate by plate. In places, she even affixed with yellowing tape several inch-square photos of relative sections of annotated plates. Were Levitt to gain a window on today's world, she might be well-placed with the recognition afforded her, though she never actively sought any. Of greater satisfaction than the attribution of the Levitt Law, Wendy Friedman thinks would be the gratifying persistence of Cephids as reliable distance indicators, their critical importance for cosmology, and the ever-deeper understanding of their complex behavior through CCD and infrared photometry. On the day, just a few months ago, when she and I revived our discussion of Henrietta Swan-Levitt, Friedman had learned of observing time granted to her on the James Webb Space Telescope. There may be aspects of the physics of pulsation that we don't yet understand, she said. And, once again, Cephids will be at the heart of the matter. Davos Sobel has written about the history of astronomy in her books Longitude, Galileo's Daughter, The Planets, A More Perfect Heaven, and, most recently, The Glass Universe. If you want to learn more about Airs Alay and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast from Sky and Telescope. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Roger Baker, and until next time, thanks for listening. 